All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Kriyaz over, over coffee. coffee. So today we're back with part two of our Placenta Accreta Spectrum mini series. Again, we have Dr. Brett Einerson and Dr. Scott Shanker joining us. Just as a quick reminder, Dr. Shanker is an MFM specialist in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Beth Israel Deaconess and an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School. Um, and has a whole host of accolades with respect to Placenta Accreta. Welcome back, Dr. Shanker. Thrilled to be back. And of course, we also have Dr. Brent Einerson, who is an assistant professor and maternal fetal medicine physician at the Department of OBGYN at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. He is also the director of the Utah Placenta Accreta Program, um, which is one of the busiest Accreta referral centers in the country. And he also has a whole host of accolades after his name. Welcome back, Dr. Einerson. Thank you for having me. All right, so last time we talked a little bit about diagnosis of placenta accreta spectrum. This time I really wanted to focus more on management. Speaking about kind of, you know, management after you diagnose and all of those things like sending people back out to the community, what do you tell patients about, you know, antenatal management um, if you think they have a placenta accreta? And what about delivery timing? You know, obviously we're doing a C-section, but, you know, what? when would you say, you know, this is when you should deliver by, barring other obstetric uh, indications? Yeah, Faye, so I think you need to break it down into the typical accreta, if you will, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm using air coats, the, the listener can't, can't see that, but the prior section previa and these kind of more abnormal ones, the, the fundal one that, you know, who knows why it's even there or the person who had a septum resection or, or something like that. And so for the classic one, which is the bulk of what most of us see, most of the counseling is similar to that of a previa, right? And so we recommend pelvic rest, not great data out there on that, but it, I think it makes sense. I recommend patients don't travel. And so I have patients who, you know, this is pre-COVID, but, uh, you know, who say, oh, I want to take my kids to Disney World or whatever. I think, you know, I wouldn't do that. Like, I just, I wouldn't hop on an airplane right now, not only because you have a previa, but also because if you get into a situation where you might experience bleeding, I'm not sure if you're going to get to a hospital that feels comfortable managing this. Um, the prenatal care is quite comparable to regular prenatal care. In fact, I have a lot of my patients who continue to get their prenatal care with their trusted midwives or general OBGYNs. And I see them periodically until, you know, uh, 32, 33 weeks. And they start, and then I see them a couple of times and that's okay. I think once you've made the diagnosis, even repeating ultrasound to determine extent, I'm not sure how necessary that is. Because as Brett says, it's there or it's not there. It's not really going to change your management. Um, you're going to go in thinking it's the worst and kind of slowly peel back your layers of support that you don't need. I think the one thing that maybe is coming out in the literature is that is there an association with some, with some uterine placental insufficiency with PAS? That there was an abstract estimate found this year. Um, uh, disclosure: Brett and I were on that abstract, but uh, I think that you know that that's not quite uh, gospel yet. Um, people are doing serial biometry, but again, I'm not sure how necessary that is in terms of hospitalization. I think that that really is dependent upon your resources and your geography. And so Brett and I practice at two very different areas, right? So I'm in a 
we're both in, in major cities, but I'm on the East Coast where patients don't have to travel that far to get to Boston for kind of our catchment of patients. Even Northern New England isn't that far away from us, um, where he's serving five states or four states or something like that. And so it is quite rare when I have a patient who needs to be admitted for proximity. I certainly I have patients who move to Boston, but most of the patients don't don't stay in the hospital in the absence of bleeding. I think most of us would agree if there's bleeding with a with a PAS case, you stay in the hospital until you deliver. I'm not admitting them for proximity. And then delivery timing is based on on a now an older study that was a um, a decision analysis. Uh, that was done out of Northwestern that looked at um, a whole bunch of different variables they put into their model, a bunch of maternal variables, hemorrhage, ICU admission, maternal death was in there, need for emergent surgery, neonatal outcomes were in there, cerebral palsy, uh, growth, restric uh, yeah, growth restriction, death, uh, RDS, IVH, um, kind of the, the typical neonatal morbidity indexes. And um, they found that kind of the sweet spot for delivery was between 34 and 35 weeks. That was a computer-generated model that we all now really still base our, our, our recommendations on. It was in the, in the recent ACOG uh, consensus statement. And I think that it's, it's totally acceptable to do that. I think there are some centers that are pushing that envelope a little bit to try to reduce the risk of prematurity. Um, and I think that's a discussion with the patient. I don't see a reason to deliver them before that. And I will say that the accretal world were somewhat, were somewhat pioneers in, in late preterm steroids, actually, because that, that Northwestern paper included steroids in their model. All the models were, after, were uh, if I remember correctly, all between uh, either 33 and 34, all the way to 37 weeks. They all included steroids. And this was way before ALPS. And so we've been giving late preterm steroids to our accreta patients far before the, the ALPS trial showed that, that potentially there was benefit. So um, it's an interesting study to read. Uh, Brett's much more of an expert on, on decision analysis than I. It's the best we got right now, and that's what we're doing. Brett, what do you think? Yeah, I think there's a move right now in centers that have maximized preparedness and optimized outcomes to push these off. And I've read a few of those studies uh, or, or talked to the folks who are sort of pushing for a later gestational agent delivery. And, and the, the problem is, is that the standard of care right now, delivery at 34 to 35 and six, 35 weeks and six days, produces urgent or emergent deliveries in 30 to 50% of all accreta patients under the current standard of care. To me, that fact alone, which is, again, reproduced in multiple studies, is reason enough not to try to push these off any farther than you can. Maybe there is a way we can define the lowest risk patient population, somebody with no prior preterm birth, somebody without twins, somebody with a long cervix, no, no bleeding during pregnancy, no contractions. Maybe that person we can push to the 36 to 37 week period. But I'm actually pretty skeptical that we're going to find that person because in my experience, some of the worst cases that have exploded, literally exploded at 31 or 32 or 33 weeks are patients who didn't have any of those risk factors. They had, you know, welcome to Utah. They had eight prior term vaginal deliveries. What the heck? Um, I guess one of the things that I wanted to touch on too, um, certainly from a 
fellow's perspective, and then I'm sure a senior resident's perspective, and even some of our junior faculty, I bet. No, one of our recent podcasts was on the evidence-based cesarean section. And I was wondering if there are any tips or evidence-based cesarean hysterectomy things that we can touch on. Because I know that probably from center to center, experience to experience, there certainly are differences in, you know, from skin incision, do you always go vertical midline or do you go with a fan and steel to you use preoperative stents of the ureters? Like what, what things do you guys recommend or know that there's evidence for or against? Any honest person answering this question is just got to start with the disclaimer that we have almost no research to inform any of the question, any of the awesome questions that you have about management of accreta. Um, so, I mean, it, you can read the, the Collins International Society guideline from AJOG in 2019. Start of the discussion basically says these recommendations are almost all based on expert opinion. <laughs> There's an <laughs> urgent need for large multi-center collaborations to answer these critical questions. And so, whether or not you do balloons, whether or not you do a universal or selective stents, these are fantastic questions we've got to get together and, and, and answer. But there's very few, if any, and oftentimes absolutely no data to support any of the things that I'm about to say. I'm going to say them anyways. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so do not deliver too late. I, I'm just going to go back to this. Like of any of the questions that you might ask, I think that's one one of the few that actually has data. We we have data to suggest that unscheduled deliveries are bloodier, more difficult, more morbid, and more deadly than time deliveries. And so if you deliver too late, you're putting your patient at risk. Now, unfortunately, my crystal ball is cloudy. I don't know when the patient in front of me is going to deliver, but this is the central problem, in my opinion, with trying to push patients later and later and back. So, that's the, the evidence-based answers don't deliver too late, even though there's not an evidence-based when is too late. The other thing that I think there's actually very good data about is that patients do better under multidisciplinary care, specifically in centers where there is a culture of interdisciplinary team learning. So you've got great studies from Sham Shiraz You've got a great study out of Utah that was done very early comparing standard of care hysterectomy in the community on a statewide level to multidisciplinary care in our specialty referral center. And over and over again, you see that the morbidity is 40, 60, 70% lower in the setting of multidisciplinary care. I, I go further with the multidisciplinary. Multidisciplinary says that there's a bunch of people thinking about you. Interdisciplinary says you have a team that gets together and thinks as a group about how to take care of this patient. And the team learning part is bringing back things that you learn from surgery to the radiologist, bringing back things that you learn from pathology to the surgeon and getting together in a room and really learning from each other. I think that is evidence-based and more important than any of the other things that I'm about to say. If you are operating on accreta patients, you have to be comfortable with the ureters. You have to know where they are. You have to if you, can't, if you can't isolate them without a stent, I think you should be stenting. In our case, we do, or in our center, we do universal stents for every case, unless it's extraordinarily low risk for placenta accreta spectrum. And part of that reason is because I want the next generation of OBGYN residents who are going to get stuck doing a gnarly case in the middle of the night, or the next generation of MFM fellows who are going to be asked to start these cases in a pinch 
to be comfortable with that skill and to be comfortable finding the ureter. You've got to get comfortable in the retroperitoneal and the pararectal space. You've got to be able to define in your surgical field where the ureter is so you can safely perform surgery. Because once the placenta has started to bleed and fill the pelvis up with, with blood, it is too late. You gotta know beforehand where that thing is. Other tips that are not necessarily evidence-based, but I think are uh, within the gospel of Einerson are that you should try to decrease blood flow before you address the bladder. We try to take as many pedicles, certainly the uterovarian we, we take, but we try to take the uter uterine artery before we address the bladder, if at all possible. And that's just because the placenta that's underneath the bladder is supplied by a constant supply of blood flow. And if you can decrease the amount of pulse pressure that's going to that, when you make a mistake, when you not even make a mistake, when you just get into the placenta trying to save some bladder, it's gonna bleed less if you've already secured that uterine artery. So that's one thing I tell my fellows and senior residents is try to get those pet, those uterine arteries before you proceed with the bladder. The other very true evidence-based statement is that intra-arterial balloons are totally experimental and have serious harm associated with them. In my opinion, the evidence-based answer to do hypogastric or iliac or aortic balloons reduce blood loss at the time of surgery is we don't know. And any patient getting those should be in a randomized trial. <laughs> because I think that there's enough harm associated with placing those catheters, usually arterial thrombi, but also we've heard of PEs from compression of the SVC with a Reboa. So I think th those patients have got to be enrolled in studies. And then the last thing I'll say is time is blood. If a patient comes in and she's bleeding already, that is not a standard take your time hysterectomy. That is the two most experienced operators are operating on the patient to get the uterus out as soon as possible. It's becoming rarer and rarer and rarer for us. And I'm sure for Scott too, because he's a excellent accreta surgeon. Rare and rare that we have eight or 10 or 15 liters blood loss in a planned case. Doesn't even matter if the placenta is all over the pelvis. I will take a severe FIGO 3B or percreta that is planned over a bleeding FIGO 1 accreta every single day of the week because the speed with which you have to do that urgent hist makes it a really difficult surgery. And even when you go fast, you're going to end up with a patient losing half her blood volume, all of her blood volume, twice of her blood volume. Those are my some evidence and some opinion-based hints. I want to get a copy of the Gospel of Einerson if I can. <laughs> um, uh, so I want to add just two things to that. One is that sim I, I do exactly what Brett just described. Um, I also take uterine arteries before I start dissecting the bladder, mostly because because of the deep placental I'll use the word invasion, although please don't tell anyone. There is a fair bit of neovascularization in that vesicouterine space. I mean, and so vessels that should be these tiny little capillaries are the size of my pinky. And if you're pulling, if you're dropping the bladder uh, like you would for a benign hysterectomy, those vessels, you just shear those, those venous plexuses and they bleed like stink. And so I agree with Brett. Um, decreasing the pulse pressure to the uterus by taking the uterus high is, is absolutely the right thing to do. The other thing that I would strongly recommend, and I'm not endorsing one product over another, but 
is to get your hands on a bipolar sealer vessel device. We use uh, we use Ligashore. I'm not endorsing that product at all, but there are other ones out there. That product saves a lot of blood. Before we started using it, we were doing some some blunt and sharp dissection in that space, tying off vessels, maybe using you know grabbing with a with a pickup and using your bovie to kind of create a bipolar, but um, it doesn't do the Ligashore does, and so it doesn't matter what company your your, your hospital uses. Um, that is a, a truly an invaluable an invaluable tool in your armamentarium. And the last thing I would say is exposure. These are cases that uh, we use Book Walters in every single one of these cases. We routinely do do a vertical midline for an anterior previa with a prior section. You know, the group in Europe doesn't. Um, if you can get to the fundus through a malar or a churney. Uh, more power to you. I don't think I can. Almost all of our incisions are below the belly button. Yeah, my, I've had a lot of patients requesting a, a Maillard or a Churney. And while I feel okay about getting enough exposure to do the case surgically, I've had a disproportionate share of those patients come back with chronic ab- abdominal pelvic pain. And it makes sense if you're doing those. If you're doing a Maillard, you're, you're transecting their rectus muscle. And if you're doing a Churney, you're sewing their rectus back onto the, almost onto the periosteum of the, of the pelvic bone. And so a lot of those patients end up having chronic pelvic pain because that's a, it's a lot of muscle to cut through. So I, I wanted to ask a little bit more because, you know, obviously a, a cesarean hysterectomy is often so morbid and so bloody. Have you heard of patients requesting, you know, conservative management if possible for PAS? Um, and I think, you know, some of us have probably had the experience of having someone who may have had a little bit of an accreta where like that that placenta just happens to be a little bit more adherent at vaginal delivery. You may have had to take them back for, you know, like a suction DNC, banjo curatage, whatever it may be. And uh, I, I know also this year that there, this year there was a plenary on delayed hysterectomy protocol. Um, what are your thoughts about these? And do you see this, you know, potentially going anywhere? Yeah, it's, this is a hotly contested um, question. Uh, and I think that there are two generally accepted protocols, if you will, if you're allowed me to use that term. One is the group out of Vanderbilt has published their data on delayed hysterectomy versus immediate hysterectomy. Their data does support in a select population patients having delayed hysterectomy their protocol involves uh, prolonged hospitalizations, do a laparotomy, they deliver the fetus. If it's consistent with what we would traditionally call a percreta, they close, they follow the placenta uh, on ultrasound, and when the vascular flow decreases, they proceed with hysterectomy. Um, this, is, this was also published out of some other centers uh, in, the early, in the mid-2000s. Or my critique, I guess, those studies that have looked at that protocol, the delayed hysterectomy, is that I think the comparison group for immediate hysterectomy is is not what most of us who do a large number of these are seeing. And what I mean by that is that the comparison group had massive blood losses, four, five, six liters, which really is quite a rare occurrence uh, when I talk to Brett. Those blood losses, although they can happen, they're just not that common. Um, as we've developed this multidisciplinary kind of well-tested team. And so if the goal to do that is to decrease hemorrhagic morbidity, I don't know if the comparison group is actually all that comparable 
for, for me to compare our own outcomes to. That's that's one of my critiques of, of the delayed. The true conservative management, um, which was uh, a plenary two years ago at SMFM uh, by the French group, what they did is they they did do fan and seals, did a fundal a fundal hysterotomy, delivered a fetus, closed the uterus, got out of dodge, patient went home. Had postpartum course, patient went home. They uh, would follow these patients. And Sally Collins is described two years ago at SMFM uh, scientific forum, has described her experience in that. My critique of those, of, of that data that was presented, that, that data is not published yet, is that again, the, the comparison group had, had a quite a large, the, the, the immediate uh, hysterectomy group had, a, had quite large blood losses. And so if you're not starting at that point, is conservative management, uh, what is the goal of conservative management if, if you're not? If you're not experiencing a large blood loss to begin with, certainly there are risks of your ureteric injury or a bladder injury, or a bowel injury, or a vascular injury. Those are probably reduced if you if you don't do a hysterectomy. However, the numbers that really scare me are 30 to 40 percent, depending on what study you read, of women coming in either in DIC infected or hemorrhaging needing emergent care. You know, when I talk to my patients who do live in northern New Hampshire or Northern Maine or whatever, you know, that that's incredibly scary to them. Not, not, and I'm sure for Brett, it's even, you know, Idaho, Wyoming, it's even, it's even greater distances. And so I've personally never done one of those, uh, I'm, I'm full disclosure. Uh, and I tell my patients that I've never done one of those. Uh, um, I have, as Faye, as you pointed in, as you pointed out, left pieces of a placenta in, and, and those do involute work with uh, part of our team uh, in MIGS and do a hysteroscopic resection, you know, six, seven weeks, and that's okay. I believe that the hysterectomy is a risk-reducing procedure, not a risk-enhancing procedure. Um, and I think it actually reduces maternal morbidity. The one just comment, I'm sure Brett has a comment on this, uh, on what I just said. The one thing that that I just want all the, the learners and listeners to hear is a comment on methotrexate. And so people talk about this all the time. I have a retained placenta, maybe it's accretive, maybe it's not. Let's give her methotrexate. And I just want to kind of dispel the myths that there is no biological plausibility that methotrexate will work with the retained placenta. Methotrexate kills rapidly dividing cells. These are not rapidly dividing cells anymore. These are hypertrophying cells or really just stagnant cells at this point. And methotrexate, there is a study looking at methotrexate and the only death in the arm was a methotrexate toxicity. And so uh, there are statements all over the literature saying that methotrexate should not be used in these scenarios or retained placentas. Um, we do not use it. And I think that most of us in this world who manage patients uh, with accreta regularly uh, would support that, that statement. First of all, I totally agree with the methotrexate comments. I think it's just there's it's harm without any biological plausibility for benefit. So while... Um, long ago, I felt like it made sense to try to do the real biologists have have uh, set me straight. And it, I agree, it doesn't make any sense. I don't think that Scott's totally pessimistic on conservative management and delayed hysterectomy, but I, I do think that there's a possibility that we'll find that there is a subset of populations, subset of patients who really benefit from conservative management or delayed hysterectomy in the future. And let me just set the stage for my argument for that by just saying that without a magical blood test to tell us if somebody's got a creta or not, we will continue to see 50% or more of the cases of this be managed outside of recur accreta referral centers. And it's in those patients, the ones who have the most severe disease at the least prepared sites where I think that 
delayed or conservative management may take hold as the safest initial treatment option for that patient who's sitting in front of you, who you've got to do a crash cesarean on because her baby doesn't look good. And then you get inside and you find a percreta. And that seems oddly specific, but when you're faced with the reality that we're not going to be able to get all of these patients delivered in busy centers where they do a ton of these, where our risk of morbidity is lower than it was 10 years ago or five years ago. I think that there's an imperative to figure out whether or not this is an equivalent or, or decently good option, one of the two. And so for a couple of reasons, I think that it's possible we will find in the future that the severest cases of placenta accreta can be safely treated with equivalent trade-offs in risk with conservative management, either leaving it in situ or delaying the hysterectomy for a number of weeks. Those patients have the most to lose at the time of immediate hist in the morbidity sense. They are the hardest cases to do immediate hysterectomy. They're the cases that smaller centers are not going to be well-equipped to do. They're the cases that are at the highest risk for those massive and catastrophic blood losses. But one of the things that I that Scott said before, and one of the things that I think that the Vanderbilt data has sort of clued me into, is that it really isn't those milder cases. Those milder cases are probably going to do all right in most centers, and at busy referral centers are going to have probably less than 1,500 cc's of blood loss and are going to do great. So it's really, to me, a question of, is conservative, and delayed, conservative management and delayed hysterectomy an option for a moderately sized hospital that maybe only has five units of blood in the middle of the night with an un, unanticipated accreta? So we're going to do a trial on it. I 100% agree with Brett. If hysterectomy is a risk-reducing measure, that if you're at a center where that hysterectomy cannot be done safely, whether because there's a, an absence of surgical skill, an absence of resources, whether that's operative resources, ancillary resources, blood break resources, anesthesia, critical care, whatever those are, then I 100% agree with the management of maybe not even delivering the fetus if you don't have to, right? If you get in there and you're in a community hospital and you see, you know, big bulging loader you in segment with vessels the size of your fingers and you're doing an elective 37-week previa case, why, why deliver? Close her up, put her in a helicopter, send her to Brett. He's happy to take care of that patient. In centers, that are doing this, I think at this point in time in the United States, certainly truly conservative management needs to be done under experimental, under research. Uh, it is not a standard of care. And I, I, I support Brett's uh, trial and I hope we're a part of it. I guess kind of moving from, yeah, sort of the experimental nature of conservative management at this point and kind of swinging the other way, you know, one thing that's we're seeing more and more of are kind of what you mentioned are like these sort of you no know, referral centers. And in particular, there's one group that's kind of become known as like an Accreta Center of Excellence. Are either of you involved with kind of what Accreta Centers of Excellence are? Can you tell us more about them? How does an institution become one if they're interested? I just want to set the record straight. There is currently no certification process for an Accreta Center of Excellence. And as far as I know, there's not a push for that to happen, uh, at least in the very near term. Uh, do I believe that volume and experience matter? Absolutely. Do I believe that, uh, and echo ACOG in saying that if you are a, a level two or one maternal care hospital, that you shouldn't be, you probably shouldn't be taking care of placenta creta? Absolutely. There are basic requirements for access 
to all of the specialties that you'll need for this surgery. But there have been some attempts to create centers of excellence. And most of them, honestly, are sort of self-branding tools. You call yourself a center of excellence in part because you have a good team and you want to get referrals and you want to keep, keep, keep taking good care of patients. And you believe that you can definitely take the best care of patients in your region. And I think that that's great. But it's not an official designation. It's a, it's a self-branding tool, which I think is in most cases fine. There's also a paper by Silver from around 2015 that was published in AJOG that sets out some basic criteria for specialty centers or centers of excellence that are going to take care of planned cases of placenta creta. And that lays out a number of different prerequisites for what you've got to have in terms of resources. The International Society also mentioned that in their evidence-based guideline in 2019. They got eight or 10 criteria about different team. You need to have imaging expertise. You need to have an experienced obstetrician. You need to have an anesthesiologist who takes care of complicated OB patients, surgeons who can take care of pelvic bleeding, urologists, neonatologists, interventional radiologists, adult ICU, neonatal ICU, massive transfusion facilities, uh, and intraoperative blood salvage services. You could argue about whether or not you need a few more things also to be what we might call a center of excellence. But in general, these are the sorts of things you're going to find at level four hospitals. These are the things you're going to find at maternal care, even mostly level three hospitals, 24-hour availability to these services. But I think there is something to be said about having those resources and meeting those criteria, but not having a team. And this gets back to what I was talking about, the interdisciplinary team. You've got to have a committed core of people who are really invested in the care of these patients from diagnosis all the way up through their post-operative care. And unfortunately, the field has sort of got a problem with the fact that we've got a radiology component, and we've got an obstetric component, and we've got a surgical component, and we've got a pathologic component. And so it's that interdisciplinary team thing that brings all of those groups together. And it's really, I think, that interplay between the teams, good communication, interdisciplinary conferences, really good communication amongst a core team of people taking care of people that will take you from being a level three or four hospital up to being what I would consider a gold standard sort of place to get care for placenta accreta. It's possible in the future we'll have official designations for this. You know, there's official cancer centers. There's official places where you can get, you know, where that, that can do certain surgeries that can't do it in other parts of medicine. We may get there someday, but mostly I think the concept of the center of excellence is an aspirational one. If I'm at a center down the road from University of Utah and I've got all of these prerequisites, what do I need in terms of a team to really put this together and become a place that's committed to taking care of these people and getting better with every single case? I completely agree with him. I think that the mark is exactly what Brett just said, is that we need to understand what are the minimum resources needed. And who cares if you have the title, to be quite honest with you. And I fear that one of the reasons why we may not get to akin to cancer center is that our ability to diagnose is just so poor. As you said, 50% of these cases in the general population are not being diagnosed until time of delivery. Well, that's not the case for cancer, right? If you, th those women are getting, those people are getting to cancer centers because they had a diagnosis. And so I think that unfortunately, pregnant women are feeling this burden. Providers are feeling the, the stress and the sequelae of that, unfortunately, but that would be great if we could get there. Uh, although on the flip side, we would then develop such specialized 
niches that if a patient showed up to a center that had never seen a credo, what happens, right? And I, I agree with Brett, that's probably the patient that should get conservative management. You know, I think there is a little bit of a slippery slope there. Like, I don't think this is like a fetal therapy regionalization scenario, right? Like, makes sense. Rare fetal procedures should probably happen in, in regionalized centers. That makes sense. People have made that argument for Accreta. You know, I, I have some pause with that. I'm, I'm fear that there's going to be some down, some downstream ill effects if that were to happen. The, the other thing I want to say about that is, uh, and I know Scott's done a lot of work with patient advocacy groups too, is that from the patient's perspective, it's seen, there's a huge desire for something like Accreta Centers of Excellence. The way it's been described to me by patients and survivors is that when you're facing the new diagnosis, you have no idea how many resources are going to go into your care. You have no idea if those resources exist at your local hospital or at the specialty center down the road. And, and a lot of patients are even further confused when they hear that there are a lot of big name places that don't see that many cases. And so it's very, very confusing for patients to navigate this world. One or two good things about Facebook is that there is a huge and growing community of patient advocates and survivors who are making a big push for us as a field to be a little bit more helpful to them in figuring out if their local hospital is a good place to have placenta accreta surgery. Because all it takes is one overconfident doc in a hospital to say, yeah, this is a great place to get placenta creta surgery when it might not actually, you know, maybe that hospital only has five units of blood. It's probably actually not a good place to have a creta surgery. So it's, it's incumbent upon us to do, whether it's centers of excellence or certification or transparent reporting of outcomes and volume or whatever it is, it's incumbent upon us as the leaders in the field to make it easier for patients. You know, there's this interesting study out of, out of England that sent um, surveys to 154, 150, something like that, uh, OB units, okay? But 30% of those identified themselves as PAS specialized centers. So just kind of take pause there. There's no way 30% of hospitals in the United States would identify as, should nor would identify as PAS centers. Greater than 50% of those units only deliver five cases a year. We know that numbers result in improved outcomes. Like the Baylor group has shown that leaps and bounds. And so I fear that that's probably a similar trends in the US. I think there's some groups looking at that. Um, I know Grobman did a study not that long ago looking at centers across the US. And I think there's some groups working on that now. But I also think this title is a little bit self-serving, right? Anybody can just put that stamp on and say, we're an Akrita Center, we're a center of excellence. Um, and not understanding what the gist of that paper was that, that Brett was referring is that this is kind of the, the vision, right? This is the, the, the moonshot, if you will, right? It's not that this is what all of us are going to become. It's just not, it's not feasible. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shanker and Dr. Einerson for coming onto the podcast with us today and giving us so much information about placenta accreta spectrum. Pleasure. Yeah. Pleasure being here. Thank you so much. I had a blast. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creags Over Coffee. If you enjoy this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoffee1, on Facebook or Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or you can head on over to our 
Patreon, www.patreon.com slash coffee. Support the show. We'll send you some swag. You can also find show notes for this show and every other show on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have a question for us or for our guests today on the podcast, um, feel free to email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>